Welcome to the second episode of our Out of the Shadows Project podcast. In this episode, we're talking to Dr. Rory Cormack. Rory is Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Nottingham and is one of the leading British experts on intelligence and covert action. In the episode, we'll talk about Rory's career and his interest in intelligence, but most of the episode will discuss his latest book, which he co-authored with Richard Aldrich, The Black Door. The Black Door is a history of the relation between British Prime Ministers and intelligence from the early 1900s till 2017. In the episode, we'll discuss issues that have to do with the role of intelligence in British foreign policy, We'll discuss various Prime Ministers' approach to intelligence and covert action, including some very famous cases such as Iran and the Suez Crisis. We'll also ask Rory what are his views regarding the best and worst Prime Ministers when it comes to intelligence. Towards the end of the podcast, we'll discuss more contemporary issues such as cyber and cybersecurity, the rise of big data, and the issue of targeted killings. At the very end of the podcast, we'll ask Rory for his three favorite books on intelligence. Okay, we're here with Rory Cormack, who is a longtime friend of mine and a former colleague. Rory, for those of you listening and for those listening who don't know who you are, can you tell us a bit what you do, how you became interested in intelligence and covert action, what's your previous experiences and so on? Of course, I am an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Nottingham and my research specialises in British intelligence and particularly covert action. I'm really interested in the times when Britain used smoke and mirrors and fancy footwork and dirty tricks to try and mask decline and to try and maintain its um, global role. I find that really fascinating. Um, My background is in political history, international history, but I first got into intelligence studies, I suppose, was during my MA when I was doing a module on insurgencies and terrorism and the the professor, who who won't be named because it'll boost his ego, said did a great great lecture on intelligence and covert action. I remember him telling me, or telling the class, that um, some of the most famous uh, artists, American uh, postmodern artists, Rothko, Pollock, had all been funded by the CIA. And that was one of those moments when you're a student, you just kind of remember and think, Wow, that's that's fascinating. And ever since then, I've just wanted to know more about about this mythologized and often misunderstood subject. Well, that's one of the purposes of our project, so that's all good for us. You also had an earlier book about in 2013 about confronting the colonies. Can I did. you tell us what that was about? That was my PhD research published as a book, and it's basically about Britain's uh, central intelligence machinery, the Joint Intelligence Committee, and how intelligence understood insurgencies, irregular threats uh, across the empire. And it just showed how intelligence moved from being obsessed with the military and being obsessed with Soviet orders and battles to starting to think more about political violence and irregular threats, the threat of nationalism, that kind of thing. Um, 
and how Britain used intelligence to counter some of these insurgencies. And actually, that's, that's also where I, where I started researching on covert action by accident almost, because I realised that during the, um, the Yemeni civil war, where Britain was fighting an insurgency in Aden, in Saudi Arabia, uh, as it then was, um, there was this very, very top secret committee which worked closely with the Joint Intelligence Committee called the Jack, the Joint Action Committee, and there wasn't much written on it, and they seemed to be up to all sorts of uh, intriguing tricks. And that was my favourite chapter that I wrote of the whole book, and, and it's formed a springboard for my interest in British covert action ever since. Well, very good. And I mean, we're here today to talk mostly about your most recent book, although there, I know there might be one coming out next year. We might talk about that towards the end. The book is The Black Door, Spies, Secret Intelligence and British Prime Ministers, which you authored with Richard Aldrich. And I read the book and I really liked it. To me, it's like a, both a history of British foreign policy looped through the lens of intelligence and the role that intelligence played in British foreign policy. Can you tell us a bit about the evolution and the place of intelligence in British foreign policy? Yeah, that's why it was a, a really fun book to write, actually, because you've got this whole sweep of British history from uh, about 1909 all the way through to today, um, told from the prism uh, or the lens of, of intelligence. So you get to look at all these random uh, fascinating events from, from World War One to the abdication of Edward all the way through to, to the Iraq War. So it was, it was great fun. And the general, the general gist, the general sweep, is that intelligence moved very much from the periphery in the early 20th century uh, right to the centre after World War II, during and after World War II. In those early days, Prime Ministers didn't really care much about intelligence, didn't really understand intelligence. Asquith, uh, we, we jokingly wrote, the only, um, the only secret thing that he cared about were, was his mistress. During um, during World War, uh, early World War One, because it was it was he who oversaw the establishment of the Secret Service Bureau in 1909, which would go on to become MI5 and MI6. Uh, but he wasn't he wasn't much bothered, and and in fact, the secret services in Britain were largely created as a response to uh, a wave of fiction from the early to mid 1900 1907 sort of and the spy craze. Yeah, that the spy craze, the fear of, of Russian of German rather subversion. A lot of it was embellished, but it, it really struck a nerve, not just with the population, but with Whitehall as well. And so responding to the spy craze, this fiction, these novels, which are being pumped out by pulp fiction writers, uh, was actually how British intelligence first first formed, which is uh, slightly odd beginnings, perhaps. There were both fears, I think, of external invasion, but also about fifth column. So that's, that was one of the key developments as well. I mean, you have identified already two, this spy craze and World War II. But what do you think were the other key milestones in this evolution of British intelligence? The, the main, to be honest, the main milestone was World War II, and it was a, it was a turning point in the history. We see intelligence again, the periphery being misunderstood by by prime ministers until Churchill comes along, and Churchill was a very enthusiastic, famously enthusiastic consumer and uh, uh, of intelligence, very appreciative, but he was deeply flawed, 
Um, he brought it into the central machinery of government. He used it uh, um, as much as he could, often too much and often doing all the analysis himself and really annoying his members of staff or the, or the chiefs of staff. Um, but he brought it into the centre. But it was, a, it was a Churchillian revolution, but it was an unfinished revolution because Clement Attlee then came in after the war and he finished Churchill's revolution. Attlee brought the, the paperclip approach. He, he brought the committees, the, the structure to British intelligence and ensuring that it had a, a central part within British government. Under Churchill, it was all over the place. He brought it in, but it didn't really, uh, didn't really formalise it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Attlee finished, finished the revolution. And then ever since then, the following prime ministers, early prime ministers, um, Churchill again, obviously, Eden Macmillan, had all served under Churchill in World War II. And the book argues that Churchill almost had a training school for prime ministers during the war. So Macmillan and Eden, even Douglas Hume to an extent, had learnt that intelligence can play a vital role in, in, um, in governance and in foreign policy and in military fighting. So rather than a series of milestones, I think that the World War II is the turning point, is the pivotal moment bringing, bringing intelligence into Downing Street. There's also seemed to be like a process of institutionalization and creation of new organizational structures to make sure that intelligence stays embedded. In yeah, there was the the bigger kind of debate, I suppose, started in the in the seventies and eighties um, about what to do with um, prime ministerial advisors, unofficial unofficial advisors, the kind of people that Thatcher in particular quite liked. Um, and how the Prime Minister relates to them and the intelligence services, the, the relationship between the advisor and the intelligence services, it all, it all got, starts to get a little bit murky when you start to see uh, unofficial uh, private um, advisors, that kind of thing. But uh, that's an issue of Prime Ministerial personality, I think. Mm-hmm. I think the trend stays the same, is that intelligence is a key part of policy making but some prime ministers obviously are more interested in them than others Thatcher loved it and some prime ministers have different uh, approaches to government more broadly uh, Tony Blair famously with his sofa government uh, marginalizing JIC assessments ahead of the ahead of the Iraq war um, and then Gordon Brown and David Cameron afterwards almost reacting to Blair's informal style by creating these new these mm-hmm. new structures which, which culminated in the National Security Committee under Cameron in 2010 um, which again formalised the role of into the place of intelligence within government so it's, it's, it's been there since World War II mm-hmm. um, but it, it's kind of fluctuated a little bit depending on prime ministerial personality and governing, governing style Talking about political control, I mean, I follow United States foreign policy and intelligence. And in the States, we have to wait until the mid-70s, post-Watergate, and at the time of Watergate, in a sense, with the Hughes-Ryan Amendment, to get to make sure that there is, the president is heavily involved in intelligence and covert action. But from the book, it seems that in the UK, there is a, an incident early on, the so-called crop debacle in the mid-50s. 
brings in some reform to make sure that the Prime Minister is informed of the covert actions that are taking place and in a sense that he's also accountable. Could you tell us a bit more about this, about this debacle and the consequences? Well, Britain is, because Britain doesn't have a, a codified constitution and a formalised separation of powers, the, and doesn't even publish, um, you know, the, doesn't make public things like the existence of the CIA, um, which America did obviously, uh, Britain didn't acknowledge the existence of its intelligence services until the late 80s and early 90s. So we see quite a different culture of, of, of control in Britain, between Britain and America. In Britain it was much, it was and remains to an extent, much more informal with, with less stuff written down. Um, but that said, in the mid-1950s there was a there was a, uh, a diver, a frogman, called Buster Crab, who was a bit of a minor celebrity after his World War II exploits, um, where he was, was a very successful uh, military diver. And MI6 used him as, a, as an odd job man. And his job, his task in the mid-1950s was when Khrushchev was visiting um, Britain, he was tasked to go down and inspect the, the Soviet ship, um, see what its latest technology was, see how advanced it was, but it never came back. Um, and there are numerous theories, conspiracy theories, about what happened to Buster Crab. Um, a decapitated body washed up on Portsmouth Beach, I think, uh, some months later. Uh, other people say that he, he was kidnapped and brainwashed and ended up living his life out in Moscow, which seems unlikely to me but it was a bit of a it was a bit of a debacle a soviet official also comes out later on saying that he had killed the guy and... yeah in, a, in an underwater knife yeah. fight which yeah. sounds very dramatic and very <laughs> hollywood uh, maybe 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 that happened who knows um but what we know happened was that eden anthony eden the prime minister had not given clearance and in fact eden had explicitly said don't don't do any funny business to the soviets while they're over here, because Eden, Eden was a very vain man, and he was uh, obsessed with his image as an international statesman. And to be fair to him, he'd worked very hard to to put the groundwork in for this this summit, and he wanted nothing to go wrong. There were hopes of a relaxation of tensions in the Cold War. Yeah, <laughs> and Eden wanted to be that man, that international statesman who who'd achieve those 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 uh, that relaxation. Um, but it went wrong because Buster Crab went down. The Soviets knew about it. It was embarrassing. It embarrassed Eden. Eden hadn't authorized it. It had been signed off by by some guy in the Foreign Office whose dad had died that morning. So he was, his head was obviously all over the place, uh, and it was just one of those classic uh, classic farces. Um, Eden wanted an inquiry. He was furious, and as you say, one of the outcomes of that inquiry was closer. Um, Prime Ministerial control and authorization over intelligence operations. But even before then, uh, Churchill wanted to know every single thing that MI6 were doing because he was very scared about just 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 that um, dodgy operations going wrong and embarrassing him. Churchill, also very vain and arrogant, wanted to be the man who won the won the Second World War and ended the Cold War, which would have been quite a, quite a glorious achievement. So he, he, he also kept a very close eye. But the irony is, with the Eden story, is that Eden demanded to be, to be kept in closer touch with intelligence. 
uh, and have these proper protocols and formalities at the very same time he was bypassing proper protocol and formality over Suez so he kind of wants it both ways which is, is a fascinating fascinating premiership old Eden uh, before we move on to covert text I mean we mentioned Watergate earlier on and the, the book talks quite interestingly about the 1970s and I I picked up two main issues that I think might be of interest about the 1970s. One, that there, there is in the book a clear sense of what was going on in the United States with both Watergate and the paranoia surrounding Watergate, as well as the congressional inquiries on all the misdeeds of the CIA with the Church Committee and the Pi Committee, clearly had an effect in the UK. There seem to be similar concerns or the rise of a similar paranoia in a sense of what is what are intelligence agencies about you, what are they doing, and so on. Yeah, there's kind of two levels of paranoia. One, I, I agree, was about the worries about intelligence, particularly under Harold Wilson's premiership. Um, but there was a second paranoia and worry directly coming out of, of America um, was the Brits love secrecy. And they don't like anything coming out, which is why we still see MI6 files classified 70-odd years afterwards and, and the intelligence services being exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. The Brits love secrecy. And the problem with um, Watergate and the, the season of inquiries was that diplomats in London were petrified that their own dirty laundry um, and secrets would somehow come out of the congressional inquiries because as you know America and Britain have very have long had very very close mm-hmm. intelligence relations with some of the most sensitive staff on signals intelligence on covert operations and Britain was really really worried that when Church was rifling through the dirty knickers of the CIA he would uncover something about about MI6 and that was just the worst, the worst possible outcome for Britain, who, who at this point, as we said earlier, still had not acknowledged that MI6 even existed. So it was a very, it was a very tense, very tense period. If we move ahead a few years, you have some other interesting points in the ni- late 1970s and early 1980s. The book suggests that there, were, there was a lot of sort of shadow movements from right-wing groups or right-wing elements, if not necessarily to develop coup, but at least to plot some action. And there was clearly a sense of an effort to move politics towards the right. The book mentions the Pinet Circle from the French prime minister in the 1950s. And I think this coincides with several, with similar developments in other countries, such as Italy, the Italy of the late 70s and early 80s is again the Italy of the strategy of tension and there is a similar move from right-wing groups to move politics towards the right. To what extent what was that successful in the UK? What were the main risks involved there? Well, I don't think it was that successful, although obviously we then see the rise of Thatcherism, so maybe it had a legacy. But the, the big question was, was there some sort of conspiracy to overthrow or launch a coup against Harold Wilson in the mid-1970s. That's one of the, the, the big questions of British intelligence and contemporary British political history more broadly. 
And as you say, we, we, we say no, there was not. However, there was a series of unconnected, smaller little groups um, doing stuff privately and unofficially. So you see some of these, 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 private, these private networks, private militia forming. You see the, the, the Pinay Circle, Le Circle, um, which right-wing British people actually uh, joined and, and met with. Uh, and Julian, Julian Amory, who was a British politician and almost became an unofficial minister for intelligence and dark arts <laughs> during, his, during his time in, in, uh, in Parliament. He ended up heading the, the circular in the late 80s, early 90s, I think. Um, so we do see... Uh, there, there, was, there, was talk of, there was talk of, of military, military coups as well. Um, uh, the, the the legend goes that um, Lord Mountbatten was approached to to head a coup against um, against Wilson, and he he flatly refused. Uh, so he says. Um, so there was this kind of very uh, very tense climate in the mid to late nineteen seventies, which yeah does seem to be reflected um, more broadly outside of outside of Britain as well, uh, and we see we see Thatcher starting to meet with some of these groups when she's in leader of the opposition. And we don't quite know how far she went. Uh, Lord Carrington, who ended up becoming her foreign secretary, warned her off some of these, some of these quite crazy individuals um, with, with some quite outlandish ideas for how and what intelligence should do uh, and against whom they should do it. Um, and Carrington warned her off before she became prime minister. Uh, of meeting with some of these groups, but even then, when she was when she was prime minister, we see her officials, her cabinet secretaries, for example, moaning about her office having a revolving door for all sorts of odd, um, odd, shadowy operatives. Um, she was she was another prime minister like Churchill who was deeply interested mm-hmm. in the in the secret world. So we move now to one of the key concerns of our project, that is covert action. We already spoke a bit about the relation between British and US intelligence, and there is a lot of cooperation between Britain and the US in the realm of covert action. A case that was refreshed recently with new documents coming out of the United States is the case of Iran. And it, you make clear, in the, books, the book makes clear that this, the coup against the Mossadegh, which will come off in 1953 really seems like a British initiative in a sense. Yeah, we're trying to, trying to rescue the, the narrative from the, from the Americans. We, we the British, um, start, started it um, as early as 1951, as soon as Mossadegh uh, nationalised the oil. Um, Attlee thought about doing some sort of gumbo diplomacy, swiftly decided against it, and straight away after that, there were plans and there were discussions of how they can launch a propaganda campaign which would culminate, and a subversion campaign, which would culminate in Mossadegh's um, defeat, uh, overthrow. And there were numerous ways that Britain did this, from, from propaganda, from bribing, uh, uh, bribing people in the bazaar, bribing merchants, trying to bribe parliament, trying to bribe, bribe politicians, um, in 1952 elections, Britain was, was meddling and was trying to uh, convince the Shah to appoint a particular candidate uh, and bribing uh, other people to support that candidate to the extent 
that Mossadegh then booted out all the British diplomats um, and, by extension, spies from Iran in um, autumn 1952, I think. Uh, and this is the point where suddenly Britain is desperate to get rid of Mossadegh because he's nationalised the oil. Britain is skint after World War II, desperate for the revenue the oil brings. Uh, but they've got no assets. So Britain goes to, British diplomats go to Washington. And by their own admission, they completely, completely overplay the communist card. And they say to Eisenhower and the CIA... Um, who had just come to power just, as well. Who just come to power. And was a more, as we all know, was a more... Amenable um, than Harry Truman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was, yeah, a much more amenable, amenable sort of co-action than Truman. Um, and they went and they said... Communism, communism, communism. If we don't overthrow Mossadegh, the Soviets will take Iran and it will be horrendous. Um, by Britain's own admission, they, over, they exaggerated that. Um, Churchill even said that he didn't buy it, but he was going to play that card to Eisenhower. Uh, the question, I suppose, in all of this is how much influence Britain had on, on Eisenhower. Would Eisenhower have done it anyway? Because as we know, he was quite pro. Mm -hmm. He was quite pro covert action. But Britain did set the wheels in motion and then apply pressure on, on the CIA and Eisenhower and then was heavily involved in the planning from Cyprus uh, there were meetings in London um, it's, even though Britain had no presence in Iran MI6 were heavily involved in the, in the planning and the CIA used uh, when they executed the operation they used MI6 assets MI6 networks uh, I, I think it's fair to say that they the CIA would not have pulled it off in the way they did without Britain's groundwork and um, and networks in place. Um, but whether or not they they would have done their own operation without Britain, regardless, is one of those things we'll never know. I mean, because it's quite interesting, because from a financial perspective, Britain ends up worse off after the covert action. And if it had accepted the early offer from Mossadegh to do a 50-50 split of revenues, whereas they end up with 40% yeah, and a new American conglomerate. Yeah, there was a, there was the, the, the American negotiating team having like almost given the green light to go and do the operation, then came back at the last minute to Britain and said, well, actually, we'll, 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 we'll divvy it up this way. By which time Britain were just so desperate to have the Americans on board, they were kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah. fine, whatever. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a great outcome for the British. Uh, but um, Mossadegh was gone. Yeah. So I mean, there seems to be some evidence that, um, in some cases, more than some evidence that Britain and the U.S. also cooperated on other covert action. One is the Congo, and the assassination of Lumumba by political forces hostile to Lumumba with more or less involvement from the CIA. And the other one in Indo is Indonesia, where actually Britain seems to go on after the US and after the Eisenhower administration has to a large extent accepted that the Indonesian government should remain in power and so on. Yeah, Britain was, um, was very keen on working with the Americans on, on covert action, largely for financial reasons. The narrative in Britain anyway, and I'm sure the Americans might dispute this, was that the Brits had the experience and the brains and could do all this stuff. The Americans had the money 
And so Britain would try and co-opt the Americans joining them in various operations. The, 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 the big area they cooperated on in the 1950s was, was the Middle East, um, and particular, particularly Syria, where in 55, 56, again, Britain tries to convince Eisenhower of communist threats. Again, the, the level of agency Britain had in that is, is debatable, but they did try and convince Eisenhower to go in on an operation with them. Uh, that went horribly wrong because of Suez. But they then did it again in 57. They tried another operation um, together. And they even created um, working groups, very, very top secret working groups between the CIA and MI6 to try and um, coordinate covert action. I get these, these went wrong because no one really wanted to share all the intelligence with each other. Covert action is the most secretive and sensitive of all, of, of everything, really. Um, so that was, that, was, that was a problem. Uh, they, had, they had an Indonesia working group in, in 57, 58, 59, which met regularly. Um, but as we know, the operation ended in disaster after, um, after it was exposed. And, you, and Britain did, did carry on. Um, in, in fact, Britain, Britain fought a, a very, very large-scale secret war against the Indonesians and then its confrontation, which involved a lot of special forces operations and raids, a lot of propaganda to try and um, deter Sukarno from, um, from his aggression towards the new Federation of Malaysia. And there were tensions between Britain and America. I think it's, it's misleading to, to always think of this special relationship, this mm-hmm. so-called special relationship. Um, the Americans were getting fed up with the Brits from as early as the late 40s, early 50s. Um, Wisner was saying um, the, the, the Brits haven't got a clue what they're doing. And, and this, this famous expertise is completely, um, <laughs> completely over-exaggerated. Over uh, and they fall, they fall out over that. They fall out over, over Iran initially. There's tension over Yemen um, in the 1960s where Britain is trying to convince convinced the Americans to help them with covert action against NASA in the Yemeni civil war and Kennedy's White House says something like don't bite us we'll bite back and it's, there's, it, there's, a, there's, a lot, there's a lot of tension there. Um, there is massive tension over Suez as well. Yes yeah of course massive tension uh, over Suez um, which, which I find really interesting because they, they did fall out big time and Americans were very, the American administration was very critical of the collusion. And yet, the year before and the year after Suez, America was colluding with Britain um, and uh, Iraq first and then, and then Jordan and, and then maybe Turkey to try and overthrow the Syrian government. So we, we've got very similar um, tactics. Uh, one of which was heavily criticised by the Americans, and yet sandwiched in between two other attempts at collusion, which which is intriguing <laughs> to say the least. At Inconsistent. Some, at some point in the book, there there is clearly is a sense that there is a clear obsession in the UK about Nasser, not dissimilar from the obsession in the United States and in the Kennedy administration with Castro. So much so that the proposal the suggestion is made if one could not get rid of Nasser and trying to assassinate Nasser and so on. What was this obsession about? Why was Nasser such a danger for Britain? 
the Brits, but more particularly the Prime Minister Eden, hated NASA. And Eden was a was was an obsessive character, and NASA really got under his skin. Um, and the the problem was NASA's threat to Britain's position in the Middle East. And Britain had obviously long had um, colonial interests in the Middle East. And NASA was this firebrand, charismatic leader saying, um, no, get out of Egypt. And not just get out of Egypt, get out of the whole Middle East. NASA was developing something that uh, the Brits knew as Pan-Arab NASAism to, uh, to join up all of these countries um, and take back control, essentially. And that's something the Brits couldn't live with because Britain thought that its interests in the Middle East were so important that losing them would uh, accelerate decline um, catastrophically. Um, particularly when he nationalised the Suez Canal, obviously, as the, the spark to the, to the invasion, um, because Britain relied on, on, on traffic through the canal. Uh, Britain had important military bases um, around that area um, before he nationalised it. So this was a major challenge to Britain, and there were different ways of dealing with it. And there, were, there were debates within the government about do we try and work with him, do we try and deal with him, negotiate with him, do we uh, have sanctions against him, or do we just try and overthrow him, do we invade, mm-hmm. uh, which they couldn't do because it was um, too expensive, um, <laughs> or do we try and kill him? And that's one of the big debates is did Britain try and do assassination against NASA? And you'll be unsurprised to learn that there is a grand total of zero files in the <laughs> National Archives referring to assassination and NASA. Not even with a word search, like typing in assassination? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if, only, if only it weren't like that. Uh, yeah, if one day they digitise everything. I think amazing. there is an interesting Mitchell and Webb sketch about all the ways not to say assassination. So yes, yes, there, yeah, there is. There but is. I mean, as you know, it's one of my interests, and I'm looking at the U.S. government involvement in assassination. And in the book, it seems to come up in three main occasions. One is Nasser that we just spoken about. The other one is Idi Amin, the leader of Uganda. And then later on, the book seems to suggest that when the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan occurs and the US and other countries start supporting the Mujahideen, the US is quite happy to have collaboration from Britain because Britain seemed to have looser regulations surrounding the issue of assassination and targeting people and so on. What do you think is the British intelligence approach to assassination throughout, perhaps throughout the Cold War? That's a good question. Britain does not do assassination. MI6 does not have a particularly strong paramilitary wing that can do this kind of stuff. Britain does not have a cultural history of directly doing this kind of stuff in a similar way to, say, the Russian intelligence has done. Britain prides itself on fair play in international relations, um, rightly or wrongly, um, but it does not, MI6 does not do assassinations. However, 
the reality is, is maybe slightly more nuanced than that. What we see from the files is Britain working with others, outsourcing, but we also see Britain trying to sometimes almost create, using propaganda and subversion and bribery and political warfare to create a, an atmosphere where um, the person that they would be happy to see bumped off is bumped off without doing it themselves or even without having to give the order to do it themselves which um, is clever because it's harder to trace back to London mm -hmm. and they, they technically didn't do anything um, directly there are similar debates about the United States and Chile for example with General Schneider and yeah. it was not the CIA it was a group which reached the CIA and broken off relations the week before <laughs> convenient yes. So, 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 yes so how do you then prove in mm -hmm. the CIA's case how do you then prove they were involved it's very hard to do and we, we see the same thing with, 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 with Britain um, where they just yeah they whip up the population into a further and hope and what, one, that was one of the plans to, to assassinate NASA was to um during the invasion, the hope was that a climate would be constructed whereby some military officer would, would, go, and, would go and kill him, uh, which MI6, one of their officers, said would not have been a shame. And that, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was kind of the, the approach. It's a very indirect uh, way of doing it, which, like I say, was, was in some ways was deviously clever because it's mm -hmm. hard to trace back. In other ways... It's more dangerous and silly because you lose control. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a trade off, isn't there? When you when you outsource someone else to do this stuff, uh, or or even like indirectly whipping up a, a situation where it happens almost autonomously, you have no control over how it happens, who does it, uh, which I think was was was, was an issue. Um, and so, sometimes things got out of hand. It was an issue for the United States as well. I mean, Bob Woodward has those chapters in his book about the US reliance on Lebanese agents to allegedly get rid of Fadlala in Beirut and they do a car bombing and the car bombing misses Fadlala and creates an enormous amount of civilian casualties and they put on a banner on the destroyed building made in the USA. So you lose control but you also are still held accountable. Yeah, so it raises almost a very dodgy question. Is it, is it more appropriate uh, in terms of political eff uh, efficacy of achieving your objectives and also of reducing civilian casualties if you do it yourself? Um, which, which might have something to do with the rise in drone strikes, perhaps. I, I, you know, I, think that's a, I think that's a really good point. It's it is, in theory... Um, as you know, much more precise mm -hmm. than paying some dodgy warlord to yeah. shoot someone effectively. And going back to your point about Afghanistan, that's what the Americans were, were getting at, was we see this change in the Anglo-American relationship, whereas, to put it quite crudely, in the early years, post-war years, uh, Britain had the expertise, America had the money, and Britain was trying to get America to do, to do stuff. It's, it's more complex than that, but broadly speaking... By the 80s, um, America has the expertise and the money, and Britain is, is thinking, well, how can we mm -hmm. ensure we are a, have leverage in an increasingly asymmetric relationship? Uh, and you're right, the British rules and regulations are so much looser, 
and America was in the aftermath of Watergate and Church Committee and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so the, the Americans saw the Brits as a potential vehicle for um, more lethal operations. Um, they, they thought that maybe they could give money to the Brits and the Brits could then um, get certain types of weapons into Afghanistan which could be used to kill people because the CIA were banned from doing so. And there's a similar thing going on, allegedly, in Cambodia around the same time in the mid-1980s where Reagan was working with Thatcher, it was one of those deals between the White House and, and Thatcher um, to support groups that had indirect links to um, the Khmer Rouge uh, because Reagan must have known that he could never get that kind of thing through Congress mm-hmm. yeah. um, in the aftermath of the Sandinistas and um, Iran-Contra, Iran-Contra etc. Yeah. yeah. So because of that climate, suddenly Britain's a useful ally, particularly under Thatcher, who, who loved doing this sort of stuff anyway. <laughs> I mean, as we mentioned, the book is at this great historical sweep from the early 1900s till... I think you have a quote from Theresa May in the conclusion. We're doing so the paperback, yes we do. We can't go through all of the Prime Minister and those who want to do it should read it and buy it because now it's in paperback as well, it's cheaper. <laughs> but if you were to identify in terms of intelligence the best and worst Prime Minister or the best and worst practices that Prime Minister had, what would be your top picks? Worst? Let's start the worst, because it's more fun. Chamberlain, and Neville Chamberlain is, is the easy target. Unusual suspect. Unusual suspect, yeah. Um, but why in this case? Because he ignored any intelligence with which he disagreed. Any intelligence which said, actually, Hitler's um, not very reliable and, and might actually be, uh, be, be, be a bit dodgy, he, he ignored and he preferred uh, intelligence from, from his own private sources, the ambassador in Berlin, he was quite pro, pro-Germany, um, which was all saying, uh, you, we can do a deal with Hitler. Which I was trying to make a deal with Mussolini, also at a very, very late stage. Yeah, they were up to, they were up to, it was up to all sorts of stuff, to try and, but purely to try and back up his policy of appeasement, which he'd already decided. And that is one of the cardinal sins of intelligence consumption when you cherry-pick the bits of intelligence that support your own preconceived view. And Eden was, uh, Chamberlain was guilty of that. Um, Tony Blair, perhaps? And Blair to a similar extent. But Eden was... I keep saying Eden. Eden was bad as well. Um, Chamberlain was particularly bad because people were risking their lives to get some of this intelligence from Germany and he was disregarding it. Um, and there, so, there, yeah, there are similar echoes uh, with, with Tony Blair... Um, of, of cherry-picking um, MI6 reports which supported him, of marginalising the Joint Intelligence Committee because they offered more, more sober assessments um, and just been basically being more informal in, in his use of intelligence. And Churchill was the same. Um, he was very informal in his use of intelligence. Gordon Brown often gets a, gets a hard press, um, but he also wasn't a great intelligence consumer um, he wanted, he wanted to, he wanted, uh, he wasn't that interested, but he also couldn't take a, de- couldn't take a decision. And the intelligence chiefs, after various attacks, were just waiting for some sort of direction, but he, he, he 
panicked and found it found it quite difficult, or so we've been told anyway. Uh, in terms of better consumers, John Major, Major doesn't Major. His reputation is growing, I think, with every with every passing year, and he was a steady consumer of intelligence because he valued it, but he wasn't obsessed by it. He didn't fall into Thatcher's trap of only reading intelligence to the, to the, at the expense of everything else. He didn't fall into the trap of thinking that everything that was in, that was secret was true, mm-hmm. which is a, a trap which which many prime ministers seduced by mm-hmm. by the secret world just start to give it more weight than it than it perhaps deserves, as we saw um, in the run up to Falk- the Falklands War one of the big intelligence failures. So Major was quite a sober and astute judge. Macmillan, in a similar way, was, was quite sober and astute. He understood the value of intelligence, but he also didn't romanticise it. Mm-hmm. He thought, apart from covert operations, which he, which he had his weird love for, um, but MI5, counterintelligence, counter-subversion, that kind of stuff, he could see the value, but he didn't want to, uh, he didn't get obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Churchill and Thatcher, two very famous consumers of intelligence, both loved it, but probably loved it too much mm-hmm. at the expense of um, actually being able to use it wisely. Okay, we're moving now towards the final few questions. The book concludes, at least the paperback edition I have, concludes talking about contemporary issues, terrorism, targeted killings, the issue of big data, transparency and leaks, all the leaks that have come out of the United States that have inevitably impacted the U.S. as well, and also cybersecurity and cyber warfare. What do you see as the most relevant issues for, the, for 21st century intelligence? The, I think the, 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 the data point you mentioned is, is a really important one because we've seen from some of these leaks the hoovering up of how, how the intelligence services, particularly in America, hoovering up phenomenally vast some vast amounts of, of information, of metadata. Mm-hmm. And this raises two important points. One about the privacy civil liberties debates, which which is obviously an important debate. And secondly a more practical point is how do you manage this mm-hmm. amount of information? What we've, what we've got is the, the haystack becoming yeah. a heck of a lot bigger. So how do you then manage to find the needle? Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a difficult uh, task to sift, as they say in the jargon, sift um, signals from noise mm-hmm. to work out um, where, where the really useful, the juicy mm-hmm. intelligence actually is in amongst all this, all this mass. I mean, the United States was a conscious, conscious decision by the NSA, this idea that to find the future needle, we need to make sure that we are storing all the possible haystacks we have around, which included also some linguistic maneuver to suggest that storing information from the American citizen was not the same as collecting yeah. information from the American citizen, although that was a pretty tough sell, I think. There's a lot of euphemisms involved, I yeah, think, yeah. I think in, in this business. Um, the, the, other, the other thing about data is, as, we, as the big issue of today, um, is how it's used by hostile states and um, those 
with an interest in undermining democracy, as, as, as you've commented on widely with the, the, the Trump-Russia saga, mm-hmm. um, the ability to, to hack and release selected bits of information, some of which may be doctored slightly uh, in order to manipulate opinion, is, is a very, very big, big issue. Uh, but then so is the, the use of this for propaganda purposes, where we see um, the ability to gather all this data and then create a micro-targeted message, mm-hmm. whether that's really honing in on a certain swing state in the American presidential election to make sure their Facebook ads were, were very, very targeted and maybe um, not wholly accurate, yeah. as may well have been the case. And we're seeing allegations of similar activity in Britain over the EU referendum, recent, president, uh, recent general election, uh, of using all of this data to do very, very cleverly targeted adverts which mm-hmm. help sway opinion. And those adverts may or may not be true because the regulation of the internet is much uh, less stringent than regulation of um, old-fashioned political campaigning. And I think that is a really big, dangerous issue and quite a scary issue mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you think about some of the power that these... Um, what do they call them, Twitter bots and sock puppets and all that kind of thing, the power they may have. Um, and if you saw the, the recent series of Homeland, it was being explored in, in that as well. And the ability to undermine democracy through social media is... There was clear evidence of massive Twitter bots from Russia at the time of the Brexit referendum. Yeah, and they see, from what I've read anyway, they seem to be set up in big warehouses <laughs> um, uh, doing doing all this stuff and trying to influence in opinion and you and you hear you hear similar stuff from um, uh, officials in Germany and mm-hmm. the Netherlands about the Russians trying to yeah. try and see sway their own electoral processes, which which I think is concerning. Now, there have always been attempts to uh, influence um, the internal affairs of other states uh, ever mm-hmm. since. Well, forever, Queen Elizabeth I was at it in the 15th, 16th century. Um, but I think we're in this era of mass data and micro-targeting, it's becoming a bit more scary. And I think, because I think states need to catch up um, with, in terms of their oversight, in terms of their counterintelligence, in terms of uh, regulating internet spaces, it's it's a massive challenge and, and the Russians allegedly have exploited that over the last couple of years. I mean, something that you mentioned Donald Trump and something that he was very successful in doing, and it's a struggle to say that he was successful in doing anything, but something he was successful in doing, especially with his base, was to convince his base and much of the American public that intelligence agencies could not be trusted. They've been wrong so many times in the past. Why should we trust them now when they come up with this Trump and Russia thing? What do you think is the, let's say, the reputation of intelligence agencies in the UK at the moment? Do they suffer to an extent from the same, let's say, post-Iraq trauma? Or is <laughs> that, have we moved beyond those? I think we've moved beyond the post-Iraq trauma and we're currently dealing with the post-Snowden trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, although trauma is the wrong word in Britain anyway because the Brits, I keep lived here long enough, are an apathetic bunch 
And when these, the Guardian had these amazing revelations about GCHQ watching everyone's every move, and the British people were like, well, I'm Italian as well, so we know quite a lot about apathy. <laughs> Whereas the Germans, for obvious um, uh, recent historical reasons, were livid that mm-hmm. these surveillance were, 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 were ongoing. Um, and the Americans, there are big debates about, about that, and Obama waded in. In Britain, it's, yeah, well, you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which, which is a, a typical British, British attitude. A bit of light grumbling followed by apathy, which is the British way of dealing with things. Um, but GCHQ has been on a bit of a charm offensive mm-hmm. after, after this. Um, they have faced criticism. And we've seen them release things like puzzle books. Yeah. We've seen them join Twitter. Um, there's going to be an official history because they were the only, as you know, the only, the only um, British intelligence agency without a authorised history mm-hmm. after Chris, Andrew and Keith, Jeffrey did MI5 and MI6. Yeah. yeah, and so Richard Aldrich did his unofficial, very, very good, I have to add, uh, history of GCHQ. But now there's going to be an official one, uh, or authorised one, by John Ferris, I think, um, which again is all part of this this GCHQ charm offensive, I, I think. But generally, the intelligence services, I think anecdotally, um, are held in pretty high regard in in Britain. Um, and they always have been, ever since the, the days of the, the kind of detective novel when special branch started to become more sexy in the mm-hmm. early 20th century through things like James Bond. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to MI6 chiefs who have said that, that James Bond is the best recruiting sergeant because <laughs> everyone wants to sign up. The danger though is that MI6 don't want James Bonds because James Bond's a psychopath and would... Um, would mildly alcoholic. A mildly alcoholic, womanizing psychopath who would be <laughs> a generally terrible MI6 officer. But because of the mythology that he's created, people people respect uh, MI6 and, and think they're all powerful um, and, and um, yeah, know everything. Well, Rory, final two questions. One, what can we expect from you in the future apart from more collaboration with our amazing project? <laughs> what are you working on? What's your next book? Um, I am working on a history of British covert actions in 1945, but not quite as big a sweep as the Black Door. Um, but 9.45 till the present day, looking at how Britain does covert action, how Britain defines covert action, because nobody's even, nobody's looked at that. The American case, it's written down in black and white. This is covert action. Well, to an extent. Yeah. From the early, four, late 40s, mm-hmm. and then through the executive orders of 81, 91. Um, it, it does say, this is what covert action is. And I know this debates, but I know there's all sorts of departmental tensions about, about uh, jurisdictions and whatnot, but at least there's something written down. In Britain, it's never been defined, um, at least in public, and I, as far as I know, in private. Um, so I'm looking at what is covert action for Britain? When, do Britain? when has Britain done it? Why does Britain do it? And what does it look like? Who engages in it? And it's a very, you'd be unsurprised to know, it's a very blurry, vague mm-hmm. uh, concept, which anyone can join in. Um, in America, in Cape Action is the domain of the CIA. Um, there's, in, a, in a non-military environment, obviously, as you know, that's debated. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Britain, 
the MI6 can get involved, GCHQ can get involved, if it involves the internet, special forces can get involved. Um, so it's a more amorphous, a more amorphous concept. Um, and that's going to include some you know, new details on new exciting covert actions which have never yet been discussed and it's coming out next spring. We'll have to buy it again and then come back for the second episode on Round two. 2018. <laughs> well, final questions, and this is sort of my homage to Ezra Klein, the Ezra Klein Show. What are three books you would recommend for people interested in this topic or interested in what you're doing or books that have inspired you and so on? And you can't recommend your own books or, oh, or your upcoming books. Oh, right. On British, British. That can also be fiction. I, I don't. I, this, you're gonna, you're gonna roll your eyes now. I don't read any fiction. Me neither, particularly. I, I just, I just don't. It's really bad. I should, but I don't. I, sometimes I find this, the truth is stranger than fiction. I've got to, I've got to, uh, I've got to recommend. I think. Um, my co-author and, and favourite collaborator, Richard J. Aldrich's <laughs> book, The Hidden Hand, Britain, America, Britain, America and Cold War Secret Intelligence, because that was from 2001, and I've got to be honest, it's the one that really got me interested in some of this sort of stuff. It's, it's a bit old now, it's a bit out of date, could do with an update, um, but he was the first to use archival documents to explore um, British KRF action and its relationship with America, and in, in fact intelligence, um, intelligence more broadly. So that would be, that would be number one. Number two, I'll tell you what I really like, um, I really, I like Hugh Wilford's America's Great Game, where he talks about um, the CIA in, um, when he talks about the CIA in the Middle East in the 1950s, and obviously CIA 1950s is the height of their um, rogue elephant status <laughs> and, and they're doing all sorts of crazy or stuff. Or golden age, depending go on what side you look at. <laughs> the golden age, the heyday of the yeah. CIA. Um, they're doing all sorts of exciting things um, in the Middle East. And Wilford, uh, he's very well researched, but he's, he's a wonderful writer. And, um, uh, and he, tells the story, he tells the story very nicely. Number three... Who should we have for number three? I I'm gonna give a I'm gonna give no actually no I wasn't gonna shout out to my PhD supervisor Michael S Goodman um, at his official picture of the jig, but I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna point to where is it? Peter Hennessy's Secret State, um, which was one of those early books that really got me excited in this topic, um, where. It's, it's about, it's, it's not about covert action, but it's about intelligence, um, preparations for World War Three, preparations for nuclear strikes. Um, from the British perspective. From, yeah, all, entirely from the British perspective. Um, about how Whitehall, all, all the Whitehall secret machinery, basically, of uh, how the government would deal with, with a nuclear strike and Cold War bunkers for number 10 and secret railways underground. Um, it's a really interesting read, yeah. Very good. Rory Cormack, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure.